my name is Devi, as I said earlier, and today I want us to take some time and focus on the topic called uh, steadfastness uh, in a broken world. And truly, we live in a broken world, right? Our world is broken, and if you look at your life and look at the general things that are happening in our world today, there's a lot, there's a lot happening that would show us that this world is yet to be fixed. And the reality of the Christian journey is that it's a long journey. It's not a short journey. It's not one of those that you... You, it's not a sprint. You see the way Usain Bolt does 100 meters in nine seconds? No. The Christian journey is a marathon. Whatever you have to run, as you run, you will feel the aches of your, of your Zigwembe right here, and you'll feel the, the weightiness of it. You will pant. Your lungs will burn with, without trying to gasp for more air. And my hope today is just to encourage you in your obedience journey that God is with you, and that even in this broken world, you too can still be faithful to God. And one of the things that is quite interesting as you think about our world is that you'll find more opportunities to be tested. Your faith will be tested. Your convictions about God will be tested. You'll be, you'll be tested to obey him in moments when you want to and in, in moments when it's convenient for you not to obey him. And I don't know how your obedience journey is as, as you've journeyed through the 15 weeks with Bishop Charles, such an amazing, powerful series that we've had, as you've listened in to the many sermons that have been shared since January. I'm curious to know how is your obedience journey going in, uh, going on. And one of the things that is quite interesting is that it's usually easy to obey God when things are working, right? When your math is working, is, is mathing and your life is giving, and when you, songs like, what shall I render to Jehovah, yeah, make a lot of sense to you. Or rather when, these songs, umefanya hili, umefanya lile, umenipa jina, they are so close, you're actually so personal in these particular songs. Or rather in moments when, you wonder like our local poet, Mungu nimefanya nini mimi? Yeah, nimefanya nini? Thanks for being too good. Tafuta zuru wengine. I'm enjoying lots of blessings, right? It's so easy that sometimes in those moments, we feel like we can actually obey God. But how do you respond to the issues of life when the world squeezes you to conform to it? How do you respond to the hostilities of these worlds? How do you respond in certain scenarios whereby injustices are brewing in your watch and you look at them and you wonder, this is not for me to follow on? How do you handle moments when ungodly, mean, inhumane decisions are made at work by an authority that you can actually confront? And the culture is, everyone does it. Who am I to stand and try and push back on this particular policy? What about popular culture? When things seem to be relative, when truth is no longer an absolute concept, where truth is, I have my truth, you have your truth, when we seem to have conversations with people that there are many ways to God, and in those conversations you wonder, me Mr. Letter Story Jesus, by the way, where can a truth in this particular space? How will you prepare yourself to be able to rise up when worldly circumstances push you to conform? When the pressure gets worse, when you are conformed to speak like the world, live like the world, laugh at what is funny or laughable in the world, what will you hold on to? when worldly circumstances fit you in that particular corner and you are pressed to want to conform. And today, we are reminded that in the Bible, there are many narratives and stories that remind us of real men who faced real issues. And Romans 15:4, Paul would allude to this fact and say that for everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance and encouragement of the scriptures, we might do what? We might have hope. And today, I want us just to turn to the book of Daniel, chapter 1. We're going to journey through the book of Daniel, chapter 1. In chapter 3, our hope is to see a God who's faithful in a broken world and also to see our responsibility as Christians in this exile 
in, in those Christians in that particular exile on how best they ought to respond. And the setting in the book of Daniel is one that starts with a hopeless situation. King Nebuchadnezzar has besieged Judah. Jerusalem guys have been moved back to this particular exile and there is a sense of hopelessness. The temple, uh, the temple uh, vessels are carried into, into Babylon. Tem the, the vessels that were used to serve the Lord, they are taken to this pagan country. And therefore we find a state of hopelessness and the question is, is God faithful in that particular space? And let's just stand there and go through the story, glean through what God has, God did to these people and also pretty much learn from them. So in Daniel chapter 1, um, Daniel is after Ezekiel, so I hope all of us are there. We could just follow through the story. Verses 1, it starts by saying, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Verses 3, it says, Then the king ordered Asphenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. This was the goal of Asphenaz. What was he to do? He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians, and verses 5, it says that the king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine for the king's table. They were to be trained for how many? Three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. It starts by, picture yourself in this particular space. These are Jews, God's own people, now in exile, and the question is, has God been faithful? They are taken to Babylonia, King Nebuchadnezzar has besieged it. Probably it could be, in the eyes of them, it felt like probably King Nebuchadnezzar wanted to, to extend his territorial um, land, and therefore he went ahead and besieged Jerusalem. But verses 2 tells us something, that it is the Lord. It says, and the Lord delivered Joachim, king of Judah, into his hand. And this is a fulfillment of a promise in that, if you read the Old Testament, this is what God had told his Israelites, his people, the Israelites and the Jews, that if you guys follow me, then you'll experience prosperity, that I will be with you. But if it be that you are unfaithful to me, what will I do? I will send you to exile. And sometimes when we think about the faith faithfulness of God, we only think about the faithfulness of God in terms of the positive connotations that come with it. We can say that God is faithful for when he provides for us. But in this particular text, we see God being faithful in fulfilling his judgment to his people. Now the Israelites are in, are in exile, not on account of the will, the, the will of man or the schemes of a wicked king called Nebuchadnezzar, but the will of who? The will of God. And therefore, God fulfills his faithfulness to these particular people. And the question is, they wonder, they are taken to this particular place. And Daniel, as we'll see later, the, the number of people who are chosen by King Asphen, as in verse 6, before we get there, we see there is this whole interview set out. And there is a clear criteria of young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand and qualified to serve in the king's palace. This CV is so high. These are like the cream de la cream of the, of the young guys who are the cool guys, who are the brilliant guys, who are the most handsome guys. And the king says, Nataka how? Reserve them for me. And the, verses, 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 the other thing we see is that they were to do certain things. They were to be taught the language and the literature of what? 
or Babylon, it doesn't feel like it's a, it's a huge thing. It, feel, it doesn't feel like it's a, it's, a, it's a huge thing, but it doesn't feel like it's a, it is something that's going to influence them in any way. It feels like they are learning a new language. If you go today and say you're going to learn Japanese or Chinese, we can say it's a good thing. You're probably setting up yourself probably to go and become an expatriate. But later on, we will see that this learning and this teaching has and serves a deeper purpose. And then the other thing that we see, that not only just to be taught the language and the literature, they, are to be, they were assigned a daily amount of what? Of food and wine, and they were to be trained for how many years? For three years. Think about people who are slaves, being placed from Ukoibo, from the suburbs of these guys are slaves, being brought to the table of, uh, of the king, and they are given what? The royal food. Who would refuse that? Yeah, such an offer, right? You actually feel privileged that, oh, myself, yeah, how did I just make, make it to this particular place? Among these verses six were some from Judah, and we're given their names. The names are Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and who? Azariah. And verse seven says that the chief official gave them new names to Daniel, the name Belshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah. Abednego. Now, notice they have been brought in into this particular place to serve the king's palace. Now, they are inducted into a new orientation system, all right, into this new culture. They are taught literature. They are given a new language. They are given the diet they ought to do what? To eat, but also something else happens. They are given new names. But before we, 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 we run and probably skim through that whole idea, this is not just a reprogramming for you to be able to understand how best they can serve. It's not a reorientation of how best to live in Babylonia. The goal of this particular space was deeper than that. Let's just examine the names of Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. They are Jewish names and the names, comparing them to the names that they were given. Daniel meant, or his name means, that God is my judge. When Daniel was looking at that particular space, his name already reminds him that God is my judge. We are in exile because God is faithful to judge us. And to Hananiah is that Yahweh is gracious. To Mishael, who is what God is. And to Azariah, Yahweh has helped me. Such beautiful, rich names were the parents of these guys that gave them to. Such that these names only reflected the character of God. That he is a judge, that he is gracious, that he is God. And there is no God like him, that he is a helper. But now look at the new names that they are given. The new identity that they are given in, in, in Babylonia. Daniel is given Belshazzar, which means may Bel protect his life. Bel was a Babylonian god. Now, it almost seems that you guys were being taught literature, but now you're given a new identity, and now you're given a new religious orientation, such that your name that was God is my judge, you're given a new name that now it is Bel, an earthly idol, a pagan god, a pagan Babylonian god will protect his life. To Shadrach, the command, the name was, it was the command of Aku. Aku was a Sumerian moon god, and yet his name was Yahweh is gracious. To Meshach, who is what Aku is? And Aku here again focuses to this Sumerian moon god. And to Abednego, the meaning of that word was servant of Nebo, servant of another earthly idol and Babylonian god. And before you think about this was not something that is, that it was just a, a flimsy way of them being oriented to the new culture, the fundamental goal was for them to be, for their memories to be obliterated of the God of Israel. That they would forget that they were actually firstly 
coming from uh, Israel, that they would be taught the literature, the language, and the myths of the Babylonian gods, that such that they would forget that there is a Yahweh who has saved them, that they would forget that there is the Red Sea, God, has been, God who has been faithful to Abraham, to Isaac, uh, and, and, to, and to Jacob, and all that they would think about is this new identity that they had. It was, it was to happen for three years. And before you think about probably three years is such a short time, how many years did Jesus spend with his disciples? About three to four years. What happens later on? These disciples come around and turn the entire world to help us view who God is. The whole idea of them being placed in this particular space was that they would conform. It was a slow fade of them learning the language and their identity being changed so that ultimately they would live their life as Babylonians. And not only that, but they would actually worship Bell and Aku and, and be able to enable and focus on this Babylonian new lifestyle that they had gotten. But the other thing that happens also later on, we see in verses 8 something happens. Verses 8 tells us, But Daniel resolved not to do what? To defile himself with the royal food and wine. And what does he do? He asked the chief officials for permission not to defile himself in this, in this way. Before we go ahead and think about why would Daniel resolve not to defile himself? Here Daniel was not following the whole idea of the dietary laws of, of Israel, that these foods were being offered to idols. If that were the case, then later on we'd see him only surviving with vegetables and water, which most likely were still sacrificed to these idols. But the whole idea of him resolving was that King Nebuchadnezzar had set the three-year program in that you are to be dependent on the king and the king's way only. Such that, as we will later see, the training was set out such that you not only learn literature and language, but you would actually eat and have the right body to be able to look the part as you serve the king. And later on, we see, we see Daniel resolving not to defile himself in this way, saying that I will not depend upon the king's dietary laws for God to sustain me and for God to distinguish me. It looks like a very small, subtle decision. All the, the issue at, at hand is food right? Food doesn't feel like it's such a huge thing for you to say, I won't have it. But he chooses to resolve the case and said, I will, I'm not going to be dependent upon the workings of King Nebuchadnezzar and the laws stipulated therein. But also what, what we see later on, we see verses 9, that now God had caused the officials to show favor and sympathy to Daniel. But also there's a model there that Daniel follows. He asks for permission not to defile himself in this way. Sometimes how we Christians defy the, the systems of this world is with acrimony and mandamano and placards and we, we want to fight and say, oh, atufanyi, you know. See, see Daniel's, Daniel's case. He follows. He's gracious. He defies the rules of the king, but there is a procedural way that expresses grace in that he says and seeks permission and says, I will not do this. But while he resolves, what does God do in the background? God opens a way. We see God creating a way of escape. He is doing and working a great work of favoring and uh, of giving favor and sympathy to this official who will show that to Daniel. And verses 10 says, but the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my Lord there, king who has signed you food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men of your age? The king would then have my head because of you. What happens here? This official is like, by the Mimi, this is a no. I don't want to die. I would rather stay alive. But again, we see in verses 11, then Daniel said to the guard 
whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel. This is now going to another person who was closer to them, and he says, again, a very polite permission to defy the law that was set. He says, please test your servants for how many days? For 10 days, and says, give us nothing but what? Vegetables to eat and water to? This is, a, this is daring faith, that they will eat low diets or low-calorie diets and expect an incremental 10-day kind of experience and be okay and have healthy bodies. Uh, to normal people like myself, um, eating low-calorie diets will not change me at all. There, there's zero chance that I would add any mass, all right? But now look at what happens with this particular guys. They says, then compare us, compare our appearances uh, with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. And verses 14, it says, so he agreed to this and he tested them for 10 days. Again, God working behind the scene on a very simple but flimsy idea of resolving not to defile themselves, and yet God is granting them favor uh, at the end of the day. And verses 15 says, at the end of the 10 day, what happened? They looked healthier and better, now rich than any of the young men who ate the royal food. And then verse 16, what happens? So the guards took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and give them vegetables in instead. Now we see now the guard actually aligning and saying, by the way, honestly, this, is, this thing is working. I don't know how it's working, but let me align. And, and he gives them uh, the vegetables and the drink and, and, the, and the water to, to have in that particular way. And then verse 17, to these four young men, it says again, God gave them knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds at the end of the time set by the king uh, to bring them in. The chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them what? Ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. Think with me right here. These guys were in a foreign land. Their identity has changed. They could have relegated themselves to the idea that what's, why should I live up to the Jewish standards? Why should we remember that God is our judge and God is Yahweh? Uh, and Yahweh is gracious and that God is what God is and that Yahweh has helped. They could have said to Jibambe, to Jibambe, this is the choice food is here. Let's make merry. We are in a totally different world, right? But again, look at what happens. They resolve to honor God even in that small particular decision. And what does God do? God does vindicate their decision. In the whole text of just chapter 1, we see God delivering them to, to Babylon. We see God causing favor to come to the official. Lastly, we see God giving them knowledge and understanding such that they were in Babylon learning the, 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 the learnings of the magicians and enchanters, but they end up actually surpassing all other people in that particular kingdom and shining in a Babylonian wicked country in that particular place. Daniel... Um, Azariah, Hananiah, and Mishael weren't pastors. These were normal Christians, normal Jews in this particular space. For our case, normal Christians. For their case, normal Jews who resolved to follow God. And yet what we see is that God does vindicate them. And this decision was private. The decision was private. We don't see them in a public particular place. We see Daniel having a conversation with the guard 
are having the conversation with the official and we see God weaving opportunities for them in that particular private space for them to honor God in that way. And therefore, the question that comes into our heads is this. How, 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 do, you, how, do, you, how do you follow God even in your private spaces? Do you really get it to, okay, it's, it's just a small matter. Why should I obey God in this particular issue? How is your private life with regards to, to that? Are you honoring God and hoping that in those pressurizing moments when you are alone, when you feel like the only best way you can do is to sin against God, do you have this resolve of saying, I will not defile myself, though the world seems to push you in that particular direction? And one of the things we see, we see Daniel making that decision, and we see Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah following. But the other interesting thing for us to note, throughout the first chapter, the second chapter, and the third chapter, though they were given these new names, the author of Daniel makes a very interesting note. At no one point does he, the writer, refer to them as Belshazzar, as, as um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The author, when the author is speaking, he refers to them as Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. What he wants us to know is that though these guys were in exile, haven't moved from Judah to Babylonia, a wicked, perverse country with a pagan king, he wants to know that their identity did not change. He wants, to know, he wants us to know that they did not conform to the patterns of that particular world. He wants us to know that though there were pressures, there was a king giving them imposed food to eat. There was a whole three-year thing for them to go through. These guys didn't bow to that, and that is reflected in their private life. We see Daniel doing that in that particular way. And therefore, later on, we see as we continue, let's jump to chapter 3, whereby we, the setting here is now more of a public, a public uh, display or challenge of their faith. We see the setting is that there is an image that has been made by King Nebuchadnezzar, which is quite high. And now in this particular space in chapter 3, Daniel is no longer here. In chapter 1, it's Daniel making a decision and the rest following. In chapter 3, it's the three Jamans, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, being tested publicly. And let's see how it unfolds. Let's turn to Daniel chapter 3. This is what it says. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 90 feet high and 9 feet wide and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Just to help us with the math of the feet and all, the 90 feet high and 9 feet wide would be about 27 meters high and 2.7 meters wide. That means it was a statue that you could see it from, a, from quite afar. It was quite a huge um, statue, actually made of gold. And then verses 2 says, He then summoned the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the advisors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. There's always this reputation of the image he had set up. King Nebuchadnezzar wanted to make a name for himself, so he created this idol, either to mirror himself, but also probably to create another god that would be worshipped. Babylonia, or Babylon, was a country that followed a polytheistic idea, whereby they had multiple gods. So they could add another god, and that god was worthy of worship. And what we see King Nebuchadnezzar here is doing, he's creating this whole tower, or this whole image, so that people would actually worship. Then in verses, uh, verses 3 says, So the satraps, prefects, governors, and advisors, treasure, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the of other officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then verses 4 comes the proclamation. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, 
This is what you are commanded to do what? To do. All peoples, nations, and men of every language, as soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, you must do what? You must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has done what? Has set up. And then here is the consequence. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into the blazing furnace. Now this, is, now, this is real. This is not the private space of you trying to nego here. You don't have someone to talk to. Hey, you know, please, can I ask for permission? This is public. A statue has been set up. The king says, anyone, after, as, as you hear those orchestral musical instruments sounding, everyone, and it says, all, all peoples, nations, and men of every language are to bow down. And then verse 7 says, Therefore, as soon as they heard the sounds of the horn, flute, cither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, what happens? All the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshipped the image of God that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. This already feels like now everyone is complying. King Nebuchadnezzar is actually happy. And the other time that we saw such a, such a huge tower being raised, it's in Genesis, the Tower of Babel, right? And when people wanted to make a name for himself, what did God do? God came and scattered the nations. But now this particular point, it feels like idolatry is back. And this time, this statue has been raised, and all nations and people have knelt before this particular statue. Then verses 8, at this time, some astrologers, for our context, we can call them snitches, came, came forward and denounced the Jews they said, King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You have issued a decree, O king, that everyone hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and pipes, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that, however, does not fall down, will, will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But again, they say, but they are some Jews. See what, again, the identity doesn't say some guys who serve you, or probably some guys who are Babylonians, but it says some Jews, so their identity is still intact, whom you have set over the affairs of what? The provinces of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to what? To you, O king, they never serve your gods, nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Now, this one is, this one, you have to understand that things were thick. It's either, it's either you bow down, or you're thrown into the into the furnace. But now these snitches have gone around and they've made an observation. They've seen, hey, there are guys you've appointed. Number one, Kwanzaa, they are holding positions. These guys, first of all, should be loyal to you, king. First of all, these are guys you've given jobs, you took your money, you spent money on their, with, with, with you grooming them for that particular position. Three years later, you've given them positions, and now they are not loyal to you as a king. What are they doing? They are your officials, but they are not obeying your decree. Everyone else is falling down to these particular statues, but these ones seem to not to know better. They are standing and not willing to bow down. And it's quite interesting that, let's remember that these guys are part of those who had gone into exile. They are others who are Jews who are there bowing down, laying themselves prostrate because a law had been created, an order had been created by the king. And we see only three guys being found faithful to stand and saying that we will not bow down to this particular king. And think with me here. If you were there, 
what would you have done? Knowing that there is imminent danger of death, would you have thought to figure to magoti kwanza kesi baadaye? Yeah? But now here we see what happens later on, verses 13. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summons who? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now, it has moved from, it was a crowd, three guys are standing for what is right, now it has come to the king. Now the king is right there. And King Nebuchadnezzar was not an easy king. The past monarchs were not those ones of, you know, you can undermine and still live. It was a matter of, if you disagree with me, it's either, you have to know, am I the king or are you not the king? Yeah? If you are not the king, then I take your life. Yeah? It was, it was clear. This was a sure bet that if you're defying the king, the king would actually act accordingly. And now the king brings them and asks them. And the king here is like their boss because he's actually employed them. He asks, is it true? And then now he says, now when you hear, verses, 13, verses 15, the sound of the horn, flute, sire, and all those instruments, he says, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace. And then he poses this particular question. Then, what God will be able to rescue you from my hand. King Nebuchadnezzar sees himself as a god. He sees that there is nothing that can save you out of it. And yet one of the things that we see these guys doing, the question was very simple, is it true? The, the answer could have been, yes it is. Yes it is true, but see what they do. These guys are full of faith and they, they are committed to their identity of worshipping Yahweh. They are committed to the identity that we shall not bow down to any other God apart from Yahweh. They are, they are committed to the fact that they will not break the first commandment. That they shall, we shall not have any other God besides thee. And verses 16 gives us their response. And it says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to do what? To defend ourselves before you in this matter. If you are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand. Just to backtrack a bit, they are meeting the king, and you can feel the pressure of the authority right there. Probably at that particular moment when the king has already summoned them, there are other Jews who decided to bow down, and probably they are our friends. The conversations probably could have been, Maze, this story, bro. Jipende, man, jipende. Just love yourself for one self-love. Just go down on one knee. We just let go and move on, right? But there they stand, and now they meet the king. And then as they confront the king, they're not willing to even defend themselves. The response of nonconformity is that, wait a minute, we don't even have to put a pledge in that particular space. Us, we know our God, and here is what their, this is what their faith told them, and this is how they applied their faith. They actually responded that if God... They actually acknowledge that God is able to firstly save them. That he's actually aware that God could save them. But also they understood the sovereignty of God in that, that God is not their errand boy who is subjecting themselves, who would subject themselves, who would subject himself to their own desires. They knew that even if God does not save us, he still remains God and it is still worthwhile for us to die for God's sake. Now the tragedy 
with our day is that we fear men too much. We obey our earthly leaders. We tremble when they give us orders. We want to conform when faced with challenging situations. We easily settle for conformity. We find excuses. We say, God, no, you would understand. We, and while we do that, this is what we do. When we say, God, no, you're not able to save us, we say that we can't trust God fully to provide a way out or to provide a way of escape for the praise of his name. And therefore, we really don't trust him fully. And we look at our God and feel like he is a powerless God who is not able to salvage us in those circumstances. And if he allows us to experience the consequences of you being fired from that particular office for standing for what is right, we feel like he is not able to provide another job for you. And therefore, what do we do? We resort ourselves to, let's chill with the popular culture. Let's do what is the culture of this particular organization. And when toxicity has increased and you feel it's up on you for you to act rightly, you ask yourself, what would one man's decision do in this particular space? When you think about corruption and wickedness in our country, you wonder, how can we change our nation? Who am I? I'm not even in the government. And therefore, we relegate ourselves to, it is what it is. Let's live life and make merry. Let's chill. Let life happen. But see what happens here. Three men standing for what is right, and they are willing to die for their faith. Then we see what happens later on in verses 19. It says, Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude changed, changed, uh, towards them changed. He ordered the furnace to be heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in the army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, and turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent that the furnace... Uh, so hot, uh, sorry, the king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, family tied, fell into the blazing furnace. At this, at this particular moment, probably think about the guys who were trying to tell them, hey, hey, relaxini, relaxini, you know, just bow down. It was a moment of a deep sigh. Whew. At least we haven't died. And it feels like the guys who didn't conform have experienced the consequences and the crowd is like now we are free we did what was we conformed to the standards of king Nebuchadnezzar and at least we live but lord behold that's not the end of the story verses 24 then king Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors weren't there three men that were tied up and threw into the fire they replied certainly O king he said look i see four men walking around in the fire unbound and unharmed and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Then 26 says, Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High, God, come out. This is the same, same king who had raised a whole 27-meter kind of idol, calling everyone and saying everyone must worship this particular God, and then all of a sudden, all of a sudden he realizes that that particular idol that he had raised is such a powerful idol. It can't save. And now he acknowledges that though that tower was high and he thought that it was worthy of worship, there is a God who is deserving of his worship. And he says, servants of the most high God come out 
come here. And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their heads uh, singled. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then what happens, verses 28? Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any God except their own God. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be burned into piles of rubble for no other God can save in this way. And how does it end? Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the province of Babylon. Now, chapter 1, we see Daniel making a very interesting resolve in his private life. Chapter 3, we see men in view of imminent danger of their lives dying, standing for what is right, and we see God proving his faithfulness to save them. God truly is able to vindicate your private choices when you please him. And God is also able to provide a way out when the crowd is going left and God is calling you to go, to go right. And one of the things that probably we can be able to see is that these guys were willing to give up their lives. They were willing to die. And the question here is, what then shall we say to these things and how then shall we apply these great lessons that we've gone through this story. Firstly, that God is supreme. That God is supreme. In First Peter, we see the writer of that book referring to Christians as exiles. That we are God's elects, strangers in this world. We see terms of us being called sojourners in this world, that our citizenship is not of this world, though we are in this world. And therefore, one of the things that we see is that God is supreme in our fallen world when wicked rulers exist and when they seem to triumph, when we feel pushed to want to conform, God is supreme in those circumstances. But also, that's not it. God is able to give you a way of escape. That when we relegate ourselves to the whole idea that we cannot obey God, can we choose to trust God that he is supreme? He knows and he is able to save us when moments of compromise hits our doors. But also secondly, thanks be to God that we can give thanks to him in view of this particular space. We can thank God because we do not live in times of tyrants who restrict our worship. We can gather here freely and praise God. There is no, there is no uh, res restriction. No one will come and tell you now because you're a Christian, don't come to church, you're jailed for four days. Yet there are other people in other spaces experiencing the same. Thanks be to God that we can actually meet and remind ourselves that we are exiles in this world. An analogy has been set out before for people who've gone abroad when they meet another Kenyan out there. It doesn't really matter whether they are coming from whatever side. If you find them in Colorado and they say Colorado, you know that is someone coming from either Moranga or Kiambu and before long, you are there making a lot of fun jokes and speaking your dialect. We as exiles in this world should remind ourselves that we are exiles and that the only way to maintain our and to preserve our identity it cannot be done cannot it cannot be done alone daniel had shadrach meshach and abednego 
We see Daniel doing the action in chapter 1. We see the three guys standing together. We too, this church, God has provided a local church that would remind ourselves and preserve our identity in such a dark world that we are saved by grace through faith, that we are set apart, that we are God's elect, that we are ransomed from sin, that we can live godly life in such a perverse generation and that we can be the light of the world. And finally, we are called to recognize the strategies of our world today. Like Babylon, they were given the languages, the literature, the way of life for three years. Yet in that particular space, they did not refuse to work for the Babylonians, but they did their work with excellence. They rubbed themselves with the satraps and the, and the enchanters and the magicians, but their identity wasn't lost. We have to remind ourselves that the world will cause us and entice us to want to learn more about the world than learn more about God. And here's the question, how is your QT doing? How are you filling your mind and your worldview with God's word? So, so, so much so that when other winds of doctrine and worldviews come to your face, you can be able to stand tall and say, no, that's not truth. That is actually a lie. And therefore, here is the truth, and you're able to present that truth with confidence and boldness and make a case for the gospel. To Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, the literature and the training was supposed to be a substitute for the scriptures. Yet they held on to their faith. The question is, what literature, what trainings, what things are you carrying? What things have you embodied more than the scriptures that you have to let go so that you can actually preserve your identity in Christ and remind yourself constantly that you are a person who is on a journey and that this is not your home? And just going back to the place of us reminding ourselves that we ought to meet, plug in into the local church. As you meet with your friends, as you meet in your real groups, as you serve in this church, you're basically reminding yourself that this world is not our home. And as, as we come every other Sunday, we are telling ourselves, we are here standing as an ambassadorial headquarters of God's kingdom, reminding ourselves that there is a kingdom that is to come. And when we go from Monday to Friday, as we are tossed to and fro by the world systems, we come here back on Sunday and remind ourselves, soldier on, don't give up, don't tire. There is a journey for you, to run, for you to run, that there is a goal for you to attain. There is heaven to look forward to. And finally, before I get to finally, there's, a, there's another final point right there. <laughs> to parents, I want to thank parents who brought their kids for the VBS. Daniel and the three guys had parents, right? They named them names that would remind them of the knowledge of God. They trained them in a way that was in that if they were to be uprooted from Judah or Jerusalem, though they would go to a wicked country, and even though they would be pushed for three years to want to conform, they didn't change. Parents, do not tire in your will and in your ability to raise your children in the ways of the Lord. Whenever you think about how will they look like, how will they turn out in 2040, right now we have TikTok and Instagram and you're wondering, probably things are going to be bleak. Do your work now. And when they get there, they will not just show some conformity to the Christian moral standards, but they will have the wittiness and the boldness to have a countercultural approach of saying no to whatever other temptation that will come in your way. So cut down the fear. Do the work. Train your children in the ways of the Lord, and they will not depart from it. For us, for us in families, for those in families, continue applying what we have learned these past 15 weeks. Ensure that you are growing and putting those things into action. But only, only by doing so will you constantly remind yourself 
that though the world is telling us to do this, here is what God has called us to do. And finally, to you Christians, you must yield yourself to the obedience of Christ. You must discard every idol that you have placed above God. And if you think about ourselves, you might think that you are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You are far from it. We fall. We raise idols. We embrace the earthly, um, earthly issues of life. We pursue power and wealth. In other times when we are pushed to be with a crowd, we act passively with our Christian faith and we, we lean back and stand. When people are asked in family gatherings for you to pray or probably for you to share or whether you are a Christian, you say you just go to church. We are, a, we are ashamed of God, children of God. We are not like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We are like the crowd. We lie prostrate for the idols we have set for ourselves. In other times, we even create loopholes. We create suggestions. We even draw pie charts and visualize in OLED, HD, 4K vision how impossible we can honor God. We place God on the secondary seats. We put ourselves on the first seats. Fear of man consumes us. Our jobs are too pleasurable for us, for us to be able to do what is right. We pursue power and wealth. All in a bid to evade the fiery furnace of frustration and lack of provision and status and quality of life. We feel like, okay, God, should I do the right thing? What if Nikikosa Unga, as if God can provide another way out to give you another job? The idols in our lives, we have to put those statuses down and know that God is with us. That even when we walk through the fire, he will use the fire to preserve us. He will use the fire to conform us to our will. And for you who is unsaved, remember that God is judge. He will come to judge the living and the dead. Are you submitted to him? Will you choose to live your life as you would choose to? Or will you choose to submit yourself to him? Today I'm not calling you to be a Daniel, to be a Meshach, to be an Abednego. No. Because you definitely fall out of that. Today I'm calling you to embrace even a better Daniel who is Christ Jesus. Who resolved, he became sin that you might have the righteousness in him. Today I'm calling you to put yourself in a space of obedience for you to trust God in full assurance, to know that he is supreme and that he's worthy of, of, of your loyalty. Choose to obey God today. Choose to put Jesus and God at his rightful place. Choose to remember that he is worthy of your double honor and that when the world presses you to conform, to the standards of this world, remember that even the worst, if the worst were to happen, he will create a way out. And if he, even if he doesn't, you would better gain the life that is to come than gain this life. May the Lord bless you all.